It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Welcome to Ed Up Legal. This is Patty Roberts from St. Mary's University School of Law. And today's guest is Anthony Nedwicki. He is Dean and President at Mitchell Hamline School of Law, a position he's held since 2020. He's not new to deaning. While he also is a pandemic dean, he served as a dean prior to that um, at Golden Gate University School of Law from 2017 to 2020. Thank you for joining us, Dean Nedwicki. No, it's, it's nice to be here. Thank you. Well, before we started, I had to ask you, how can I accurately pronounce your last name? And you had the best story. And so I'd like you to share it with our listeners. Yeah, I was a high school math teacher for a number of years before I went to law school. And in one year at law school, this is in North Carolina, they had an annual contest of the students would pick who they wanted to kiss a pig. This was so country, right? And so the students would put, you know, money into the jars. This was a race of money. And they picked me to, to, to kiss the pig. And so at an assembly in the gym, in front of all the students in the class uh, at the school, I had to kiss a pig. And I just remember the students in the corner going, wiki, 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 wiki. And so that's how I tell people to remember my name. It's just Ned, wiki, 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 wiki. So it was really hard for me to not introduce you as Ned Wiki Wiki Wiki, <laughs> but but every time I see you, I'm going to think that now. I love that story. You must have been quite popular um, at the at the school. So you have an interesting background, as many of us um, who are deans, we've practiced law. You were a labor and employment associate and a commercial litigation associate before you went into legal education. But you were also a city commissioner and vice mayor of a city of 40,000 in South Florida. And I was particularly interested to know that during your time in office, you helped draft and approve an $85 million budget during one of the city's most difficult financial times. And I wonder if you can tell us how did you or how do you think that experience might inform your leadership in legal education, if at all? Yeah, I think there was a lot of things that I did while I was in office that made me really well positioned to be a dean. Uh, one of it was this this budget, you know, that we had to take it from 105 to 85 million dollars in one year. And so trying to figure out how you make different constituencies happy at the same time that you're cutting things and not building um, was really something you had to do. And in order to kind of just make sure you weren't a big news story or there wasn't uh, protests about you. Um, the other thing is really just crisis management was, was a big part of it. I remember, and this is really a very true story and it's just amazing, but I think it was my first month in office. Um, my phone rings um, and I'm at work and I pick it up and it, said, it was one of my neighbors and said, Anthony, um, I think a plane crashed in our neighborhood. And then all of a sudden the city manager is calling on my phone from the city and said, Anthony, um, a plane has crashed in the neighborhood and we think it crashed into your house. Oh my goodness. And so, and then, then the phone rings and it's my husband 
And, and I'm like, okay, it must not have crashed into my house. My husband's calling. So what happened is that it crashed two streets over at the same address. So it was like, mine was 5280 Northeast First Terrace. This was 5280 Northwest First Terrace. And oh, so, how scary. Yeah. So I had to immediately come back into the city because the mayor wasn't available. And so I was next in charge. I had to come back and manage the emergency operations of, of when this plane crashed. And so it was those types of things. And I had to go in front of CNN and all, you know, do a press conference. And I'd never been prepared for this. And, and you know, it kind of prepares you for anything that happens because in, in this role as a dean, you know, whether it's COVID, whether it's students, you know, something happens to a student or things that happen around the school that you have to kind of manage and control. It's really, I think that those types of experience really prepared me well for, for what I'm doing now pretty much every day. I think you're right about that. We, you know, we never know what's going to be on our schedule from day to day. It's never what we expect or what we predict, but those are some outstanding experiences to bring with you um, into being the president and a dean. And I'm a little bit envious that you were a dean before this pandemic um, so that you had that in your back pocket too. It's been an interesting job to learn um, while everyone is going through that, but it's been fun. And you've been doing really cool things at um, Mitchell Hamline School of Law. And I wanted to talk a little bit about those things. First of all, I want to thank you for being a leader in online education. I know you all have had a hybrid program for some time. It's very successful. Your success, along with those of um, many other peer schools, has been the reason largely that we were able to get our um, online JD approved with the ABA this year. And so please tell us about why you started to, your law school started to engage in a hybrid JD program and how it's going. Yeah, the, the school, I put this in place before I was president dean, this goes all the way back to 2015. So they were the first school to actually get an ABA variance to be able to do, you know, part online, part on campus program. Um, the, the reason that they did it matches with what the, the mission of the school is, and that's to provide access and opportunities to those that don't normally get to go to school. And so that's the history of, of the institution going back, you know, over 100 years to this. And this was just another step in that direction. So this was going to allow people that might live in rural areas, people that might be on reservations, a member of a tribe, or mothers that, that um couldn't go to school because they have to take care of their, their, their kids. So all kinds of people we were opening the doors to that we um, have always traditionally um, done. And it really has become very successful because I think what we learned and what other schools I think have learned since then, there's a huge market for this, that there's a big interest of, of students who want to go to law school, but never were able to because they had to work full time. And then going to school in the evening was just not something that was possible. You know, at my previous school, the Golden Gate, we saw that uh, the evening pro program started to decline because I was thinking like you have these students in, in the Bay Area who have to drive, you know, an hour to work in the morning, work all day, take classes in the evening and drive another or commute another hour back. And then you sleep a couple hours and you start all over again. That's not a productive, easy way to learn. Um, and yeah. so there we, we rethought the whole program too. And they started a hybrid program 
and approved that as I was leaving uh, at the school as well. And so I saw, and that's what drew me here is because I saw the value of, of going in that direction. And so here we have a great market. What's nice is it's a different type of student that gets here. And so we have a lot of um, executives, a lot of people that have years and years in different careers that are bringing something else to the table. Um, you know, we have doctors, we have accountants, we have nurses, we have politicians, and we have people that are in government. We have a wide range of people that are here doing things. Um, and they just see that a law degree is going to help them either continue doing their job well or help them do a different type of job. And so you have a different perspective, you know, than the traditional students who come straight out of undergrad who, you know, might not have the same life experience that helps us color what the law says and, and does. And so that's kind of um, what's really been successful here. I love those students. Uh, the one good thing that came out of the pandemic is that we were forced to then start creating classes you know, online, that those synchronous classes then became available to our, our hybrid students. And so all of a sudden we started having classes which had our, our blended learning is what we call our hybrid program with our on-campus BAM students, we call them bricks and mortar BAM students. And it was the first time that these two groups of students were having classes together. And that just truly enriched the learning of, of both sides in that perspective. And so what we're doing now is trying to figure out how do we continue that type of, of offerings to give students a lot of flexibility about how they take their courses. Because I think that that's what AXIS is all about, is making sure that education, that strong, uh, excellent education, rigorous education can still happen in a way that works around people's lives and gives them the opportunity to be able to do this. And so I think that that's really kind of the future for us is to figure out how we do those courses that opens up those programs. But I also think that's the future of legal education. I think we need to stop having this dichotomy of online and on-campus courses, because I know now, especially after COVID, there's a lot of people that have been traditionally teaching on campus that started adding a lot of online elements to the course, because that's, that's a good way to teach certain types of material. And so we're just going to start seeing that blurring of those lines. And I think it's going to make it hard for the ABA to figure out how we regulate you know, and what we call a course to be online when, you know, you could do a really good course where half of it's online and half of it's on campus, because then you, as a professor, you get to pick pedagogically, what's the best thing I could do on, on campus? And then what are the things that are best taught using online medium? And it just opens up a lot of doors on how we could better teach our students, prepare our students. I completely agree. You know, the ABA just sent that survey around to us as deans um, regarding what our thoughts were about the future of online uh, legal education and how they should consider perhaps changing the standards. And I'm with you. I mean, I don't think there should be a difference anymore. Hold us to, to accountability through our learning outcomes and our, um, you know, our graduation outcomes, our bar passage, our um, our employment. But at this point, it seems very artificial to say online or not, given how well some students are able to perform and how much access it improves and increases once they're able to access some of the material on their own time and from their own locations. Right. And our outcomes have been the same or in some areas even better. I mean, our career stats for those students are better than the career stats are for good reasons. I mean, these are people that are experienced and have, have careers. And so employers always like to take somebody who has some experience and then have a law degree to kind of work that out. But 
there's a lot of good things that come out of this program and, and that I think would benefit all schools. So I think the future here is that schools are gonna see the value and start expanding what they're, they're offering, whether it's a little bit in a course or there's big programs like what you're doing over there at St. Mary's. Well, and so you were the first to do a hybrid JD like this. And you said, I think in 2015? Yeah, I believe that's when it started, yep. So in those six and a half years, how many um, students have you graduated? You have I think we've graduated 300 and something students at this point. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so we actually have outcomes that you can see you know, that, that other schools don't have yet. And so, you know, th these, these are four-year programs, so it takes a while for them to, for us to get graduating classes, but that's what we have right now. And it's even interesting because of COVID last year, we did a graduation outside of the ballpark, the minor league ballpark here. And what was fun is that the students who couldn't come for graduation, we had on the big screen, the students' faces like- Oh, um, that is fun, yeah. So they can actually see- they were watching graduation while being also up on, on the big screen, which was, I thought it was just kind of a fun little addition to this, but it also played into, you know, this is the type of school we are. Yes, we had to take our joyful moments as we could get them during exactly. last year. Right? Um, well, you've been uh, leaders in online education at Mitchell Hamline, and there's a program that I want to ask you about that is absolutely unique as far as I know, and that's your prison to law pipeline. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this is something that's still a little bit in the works and we're hoping to launch it in the next year or so. Uh, we have to get ABA approval and all that stuff at this point. But our goal here is to actually educate people that are incarcerated at this, at this moment in order to give them a law degree, either you know, to help them while they're going through the system, or if they leave that they can you know, maybe use their law degree in a way that that they're allowed to. Obviously, there's going to be issues of whether they can be licensed and so forth. But we started talking about this about a year ago. Um, and I remember the meeting and I was meeting with um, the, the people. We're working with a nonprofit here called AltSquare. And they're a nonprofit that owns a business and really tries to help with reentry for people that are coming out of prison. And so they mentioned that they would like to do this. And we learned that this might be possible because of COVID, you know, because we had these synchronous courses that people were coming in from ever we're doing high flex or whatever. And so we thought this might be something we might be able to do. And so, um, and I said, well, the first issue you have to get overcome is you have to take the LSAT exam. And I, and I said, are you able to do that? And they said, well, they tried to take it, you know, because at that point they were doing it online, the LSAT exam. Right. Um, but the prison system here had all these walls that made it almost impossible to do the exam. And so I said, well, let me call LSAC and see if we can do a paper exam there. LSAC was wonderful. I mean, they said they were very accommodating and said, yeah, let's, let's figure out how we can do this. And oh, said, you couldn't have a better leader than Kelly Testy to tackle this issue. Yeah. No question. And everybody over there was great. Uh, Susan Krinsky and, and everybody. So they helped us out. And I said, because I, I feel so strongly about this and the value of what this could bring, uh, I said, I will administer the prison, the, the, the exams in, in the prison. So I went to two prisons uh, April of last year um, to administer the LSAT exam. And I think that might have been one of the first times that that's ever been done. And so um, I'm sure <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. How many students or how many prospective students took the exam? 
that time it was only two people um, okay. there. We, and we, they've taken the exam a couple of times. And I think one of them is now at the point where she has an LSAT score that would qualify her for, for to be admitted to a school. Um, they're, they're looking at maybe having upwards of 30 people a year take the LSAT exam going forward. And so, and like I said, LSAC has been great in helping us kind of work through some of these issues. But our goal is to really have these students, hopefully more than just a couple, so they, they, they have some peers to kind of work with and stuff. But that raises their own issues, you know, in terms of being able to interact um, between prisons and so forth. Um, but I have to say that the director of uh, corrections here in Minnesota has been great about this. He has this philosophy that we need to make sure that we're giving them every educational opportunity they can have. And in my argument's been all along, it's like, we know that the recidivism rate for people drops with every degree that they get. So it drops if you give them, a, you know, they get an associate's degree in prison. Um, it drops even more if they get a bachelor's degree. It's almost at 0% recidivism rate for those that get a master's degree while they're in prison. Just imagine what it would be like if we empowered them with a law degree. Um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of the argument there. But I also think if we really want to be anti-racist institution, we need to really figure out how do we break down some of these, the systemic problems that we have within the justice system and who better to really kind of attack those things, but the people that are subject to that and part of that system at that moment. Um, I just think that that's going to enhance the learning of our students, but also push us into thinking differently about the process in the judicial system. Um, I think they're just going to be great additions to, to, to the program. So they will be, it will be high flex learning. So they would be actually uh, viewing the class um, from a distance um, while there's others in the classroom. And so we're trying to work through the logistics of how that works, making sure we're providing the right support and the right tutoring, both academic support as well as emotional and, and that type of support that would have to go along with this. And so All Square has really been thinking through a lot of these issues. And, and so um, I think we've got a lot of uh, potential funders that are willing to fund this type of a project. So I think it will be the very first one in the country to do this. Um, there's um, a school here that's doing the paralegal program. And so we're, it's the two together that's really um, adding to this entire program that they're trying to do to help people through reentry after being in prison. Well, what a, a marvelous program to highlight uh, your mission and your commitment as a school to justice, social justice, and um, to stopping the, the systemic problems that lead to our over-prison population. But I'm thinking like a dean, so I'm sitting here going, what about character and fitness? Have you talked to the bar and the Supreme Court to see, will these um, students, these eventual students, have eligibility to sit for the bar? Is that something you'll find out at the threshold before they undertake this uh, this time and expense? Yeah, anybody going into this program, we have to tell straight up, we don't know if you'll ever be able to get, take the bar and, and be licensed. That's something that we're hoping to work and educate as we go along. Mm -hmm. But you know, I think Stanford about two years, three years ago, one of their, their centers did a study about all the barriers to the legal profession that are out there um, for people that have served time. And, and what they said and showed that people who have been, you know, further away from, from their crime, the less likely they are to repeat um, their offenses. And so they made the argument that we have to rethink how we're actually admitting people to the bar 
on whether or not they're really going to be something that's going to have a character or fitness issue that would actually affect their, their practice. But I think what's going to happen here is, is the all square, they're going to start their own law firm <clears throat> and, and there'll be attorneys that can do some of this work and then they might assist until we're able to kind of figure out the character and fitness issue. Um, but that will be one of the issues. There also may be some people that are incarcerated that may never get out of prison that will be in this, this program as well. Um, you know, education is good for education's sake and especially legal education. I mean, people that are incarcerated right now are already practicing law in some form. You know, they're writing, they right. ask any judge how many um, pro se uh, prison cases they get. Um, and so they're already doing these things or habeas petitions and so forth. Um, why not make sure that they've got the skills to be able to do that well and represent and give control over their own lives. And that's really kind of part of what we're trying to do as well. So it's not just getting them to practice law when they leave, but mm -hmm. just take some ownership and make them part of a profession that needs that voice um, so, de so dearly right now, you know. That is so inspiring. Um, and I congratulate you for undertaking this um, really challenging project. Uh, good for you. The, um, the program, once it's in place, will it have any limitations on who can participate? I mean, you said education for education's sake. So will it be a situation where, you know, only nonviolent offenses, uh, people who committed nonviolent offenses will be able to participate or only those who are 10 years from the crime? I'm, I'm guessing no, but I just wanted to ask. Yeah, the answer to that is no. And we're also working with victims um, families and so forth to kind of get some guidance here because we want to be sensitive to the people that have, you know, the families and victims of crimes to understand what we're trying to do here and understand that this is trying to be restorative in, in a way and, and trying to make sure that these things don't ever happen again and attacking the underlying issues that, that may have brought the person to commit the crime. And so, you know, we're getting some guidance there as well. But at this point, no, we're not holding those types of limitations at all. Well, I'm very impressed that you all are undertaking this because I think there are many uh, law schools and leaders, myself included, who might say, boy, it's just insurmountable. There's just too many obstacles. Um, so good luck and uh, keep us posted. Yeah, thanks. No, I mean, that's the good thing about Mitchell Hamlin is that I have a, a faculty in a school um, that really believes truly in this mission and really wants to do something that's truly anti-racist and really supports the difficult issues we're facing here in the Twin Cities and attacking things in a different way. And so they're really creative and innovative in their approach. And so there's a lot of openness here that otherwise might not be open at other places. And you have to have partners. I mean, you have to have a, a good commissioner. You have to have a LSAC that's willing to support and you've got to have good technology and you've got to solve all those particular issues. But that's why you have to have a really good team to kind of work together to be able to do this. So our partners all square, our partner with the commissioner here uh, with prisons, all of that is what makes this a little bit easier. It's challenging. And, you know, we still have to get over ABA approval and stuff like that. But because of, of this dedication and commitment from so many people, it makes it easier. That's great. So we talked about character and fitness, which of course is part of the admission to the bar process. But there's um, a, a big elephant in the living room, if you will, beyond character and fitness, and that is the bar exam itself. I made a little video for my students taking it next week, in fact, uh, in the February bar. 
but you have been a leader and a pretty outspoken leader about having alternatives to the bar exam for attorney licensing. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts there and, and where they stem from and what you think we could do? Yeah, there are so many professors and leaders that I'm just on the coattails of. So uh, I say that up front. So I appreciate everybody who's really kind of looked at this issue um, really closely. I think that this became a real big issue in my mind because of COVID. Um, we saw so many of the inequities and um, in how the difficulties were highlighted for people that were first generation, those that had families that had to take care of themselves. It just showed me the problems with, with the, the bar exam itself. Um, but when you look at it, it's, it's just not tied to the practice of law. You know, it's like, how often do you have to do something within 30 minutes and, and write an essay that's gonna be perfect? Um, or you have to memorize law. I mean, that's not what we do as lawyers. And so I, I know that there's better ways out there that um, to prepare um, or actually license lawyers. So the public is actually protected, um, but also in a way that's more equitable. I mean, the things that bother me about the bar exam, number one, when you look back on the time when the bar exam really became um, you know, more common across the country, it was really meant at that time to keep out you know, black individuals and new immigrants. I mean, that's really the, the the history of the bar exam back in the early 20s and 1910s. Um, and now we don't have that same like purpose for it, but it has the same effect that it's keeping people outside of, of um, the system, outside of the profession that probably would be really, really good lawyers. Um, and so it's an unnecessary burden, but it's also a very expensive burden. I mean, the amount of the thousands of dollars that people have to spend in order to prepare for an exam and I know people always say, well, they should have learned that in law school. Yeah, they learn the substance of the law, but they have to memorize all this stuff um, to take the bar exam and learn how to take a particular type of exam. So it takes particular skills in a really intense study period, that 10 weeks or so before the exam. And so people can't work. Um, and if they do work, they don't have enough time to take the bar exam and they fail. And so they have to retake the exam with the additional cost again, and so it's just really this big financial barrier. And, and those that have the money and the ability and the family support, they can do well, um, but those that don't. I mean, I had a student um, who has a, a parent who is ill, had a sister who has issues, and then she had to work to support them and study for the bar exam. How do you think, how does that make it equal, give them an opportunity to be able to be licensed when they have to take care of those types of things at the same time that they have to take the bar exam. Again, a test that doesn't necessarily match with what lawyers do in practice. And so that, that's really what, and I'm inspired by what's going on in Oregon and here in Minnesota. The nice part is that we have a, a bar, a board of bar examiners that's actually um, doing a study on, on the bar exam and what other alternatives there could be to licensing. And so they've got a working group. I'm working on the working group. I give, I've been very outspoken um, talking about a, a lot of the problems, including the racist history of, of the bar exam, but they've put me on a working group to kind of come up with alternatives here. And so there should be some proposals to the Supreme Court of Minnesota uh, a year from this coming June. So we're working on that right now. So I, I expect that there will be some big changes here. I think people are starting to see that there's a need for it. Um, I think it's a better way to license people, but it's also a much more equitable way of doing it. 
people stay outspoken. I hope that you're very successful on that working group, you and your fellow Dean colleagues, um, as you work towards uh, some alternatives, at least. All right. Well, we end every episode with the guest answering the following question, and you touched on this a little bit earlier. How do you think that legal education is going to evolve in the coming decade? And if the answer is different, how should it evolve? Yeah, I think I think there's going to be you're going to see two kind of I think big changes uh, going forward. Number one, I think you're going to see an expansion of more integration of online learning um, throughout the program, whether it's online programs like I said earlier, or whether it's just elements of a course. Um, so I see you'll see that expansion because. I, yeah, people now that experienced it and they see the good and the bad. Um, I don't think that every single school is going to have a hybrid program. I just don't see that happening. But I do see schools that are going to see the, the benefits of doing some things online. Um, and so you'll see a lot more integration and you'll see an expansion of on online programs or hybrid programs. The other thing is, I think that there's going to be more an expansion of teaching law outside of the JD. I mean, we've seen master's programs. I think what is happening at, I think, at, um, University of Arizona, and I think SUNY Buffalo did this, but the BA in law, you know, giving people that legal skills at the very early uh, stage to the major in law and get some of those skills to be able to go out and, and do work in a highly regulated uh, world. And so law schools are going to have to adapt and really think about how do we educate people beyond just the JD degree um, um, and community, you know, within the community or with these other types of, of degrees or certificate programs, you know, um, that would be open to people. So I see that expanding uh, beyond just what we've seen with just the masters of law programs that, you know, grew a lot over the last 10 years. I see that that's really kind of the growth area. I think you're right. There'll be a lot of things changing um, in legal education and, and becoming broader in um, our scope and how we educate will be beneficial to everyone, especially with our access to justice crises. Um, but you are certainly finding um, potential students in a place I think none of us thought of before. So um, we'll watch with interest the prison to law pipeline um, as it develops. Hope we're not the last one. I hope we're the first, but not the last. Absolutely. That's what I always say about the online JD too. I want to be the first, not the last. Actually, one of our colleagues says, he doesn't want to be the first on anything. He wants to be the second because then all the tough questions and the challenges have been worked out. So you you paved the way for us. Yeah, I think states like Texas could probably benefit from this. I've heard from people that are incarcerated from all over the country who are interested in this program, including right. some people from Texas. So I know there's an interest. All right. Well, thanks so much. All right. No problem. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of EdUp Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience podcast network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.